Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we open God's Word together, let's ask God to open our hearts. Let's pray together. Living God, we would come now to adore you. And we would say that Jesus is the name above all names. And even now, we want to repent. We want to confess to you anything and everything that we have placed above the name of Jesus in our fears, in our hopes, in our desires. And as we open your word, we ask that Jesus and Jesus only would be the name above all names and be the one in whom we place all of our hopes. Amen. We'll open together to 1 Peter chapter 1. To 1 Peter chapter 1. And the message is sort of a question, have you seen Christ this Christmas or will you see Christ this Christmas? And this December, as we've prepared that Advent booklet for you, Good News of Great Joy, every Sunday, uh, the sermon will be either completely or, or, or else partially related to the text that we're in on, on this day in that little Advent book. And that text today is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And at Christmas, we gather to worship Christ because Christ died for us and Christ rose for us. And every Christmas, if it's not your first Christmas as a born-again Christian, every Christmas you worship the same Savior for the same work, but your joy is supposed to be renewed in a new celebration of him. How do we have renewed joy when we're celebrating the same person and the same works? Well, partly it might be like a, like a diamond you know, spinning underneath a bright light. Uh, a diamond, some would say, is the most beautiful, sparkling thing on this planet, and a diamond is nothing in comparison to how beautiful and how gloriously sparkling is Jesus Christ. And we can always turn a little bit and see a little more of his light, a little more of his goodness, a little more of his glory. And we'll see that here in 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning, we have five different perspectives or the, the text will show us five different persons or one of them is not a person, it's the Holy Spirit, uh, five different perspectives of those who see or don't see Jesus. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I find in this brief set of verses, five different perspectives of people or, or, or entities who see or don't see Jesus. First, we have you. 
And you is Peter's audience that he was saying you to, and, and you is also you, the audience that I'm speaking to or the congregation of brothers and sisters that I'm speaking to today. You see the word you in verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And you see it again in verse nine, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then it says it again in verse 10 that the Old Testament prophets or in verse 11, that they were prophesying to you. They were prophesying in verse 10 about the grace that was to be yours. And then it says in verse 12 that the New Testament apostles were preaching to you. Second perspective is the Old Testament prophets. In verse 10, the word the prophets doesn't refer to the New Testament gift of prophecy that we see in the book of Acts. It refers to the Old Testament prophets who prophesied about Christ. And it says in verse 11, they knew that the Messiah was coming, but they didn't yet understand the precise time or the precise way. So you, the Old Testament prophets, third and significantly is the Holy Spirit's perspective on Christ is given here. The Holy Spirit is actually called in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ. And then he's named the Holy Spirit in verse 12. But in verse 11, it's the spirit of Christ who is inspiring those prophets. And then in verse 12, it's the Holy Spirit who is, who is empowering the preaching of the gospel to those who would receive it. This is good news. You, even if you don't know that much about Racine Bible Church, I want to tell you our, our, our core value really is that we haven't gathered and built ourselves on some stuff that some men made up. We have been gathered by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God. And we are guided and governed in all things by the inspired, ever-living word of the Spirit of God. So we have the Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit, and then we see in verse 12, the New Testament apostles and preachers that <clears throat> they have preached the good news and announced the good news to you. And then lastly, the fifth perspective in verse 12 is the angels. Isn't this an interesting little phrase? We won't deal with it fully today. It says the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Last little phrase in verse 12, things into which angels long to look. So, Have you seen Jesus or have you not seen Jesus? I mean, with your eyes in this lifetime, have you actually seen Jesus? Let's ask that question of all five of these, all five of these entities that are listed here. So it goes, you, the Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit, the New Testament apostles, and then the angels. And so the answer, did they see Jesus with their eyes in this actual lifetime? The answer is no, no. Yes, on the Holy Spirit. Yes, on the New Testament apostles. And yes, with a footnote by it, on the angels. And I'll explain that briefly. So you and I, we haven't seen Jesus with our eyes in this lifetime. The Old Testament prophets, the text is explicit that they didn't quite understand and see what it was they were talking about. So the first two are no and no. Of course, the Holy Spirit has been in perfect fellowship with Jesus in the inner Trinitarian wonder from, from, well, from before there was a from, eternally. The New Testament apostles, Peter, who's writing this, the answer is yes, he saw Jesus. And finally, the angels 
Well, the angels saw Jesus, but the angels didn't get to see, so to speak, as much of Jesus as we do because they never saw him through eyes that had been worthy of death and destruction and seen that Jesus took that death in their place. It says that they saw Jesus, or it doesn't specifically say that, but we know they saw Jesus, but it says in verse 12 that they, they longed, so to speak, to experience and understand from the inside more of this redemption that we, the blood-bought ones, understand experientially, but that angels never will. From these five perspectives on seeing or not seeing Jesus, I want to give you a, a simple outline this morning, four points about seeing Jesus at Christmas. Point number one, seeing Jesus is not the main thing. Seeing Jesus is not the main thing. Seeing Jesus doesn't necessarily do anything for you. And I mean that to be provocative. I have I've done whole sermon series on the importance of seeing Jesus. I remember the theme at Fort Wilderness because my, my kids had the sweatshirts and the, the posters and everything. Seeing Jesus is something we talk about all the time. But the point is, seeing Jesus is not the main thing. You see this in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why would I say that seeing Jesus is not the main thing? Simply this fact. I don't think you can argue with this factually and statistically. When Jesus was here on the planet, the majority of the people who saw him it didn't do them any eternal good. When Jesus was here on the planet, the majority of the multitudes who saw him, it didn't do them eternal good. When Jesus was here, there were far, far more people who saw him and didn't get saved by him than there were people who saw him and got eternal life from a, from a vibrant relationship with him. And the way that I read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the numbers aren't even close. It's attested in all four Gospels that many came to him and many came to him, but there are many, many multitudes who only came to him for the bread which perishes or for a sign and wonder that was an immediate thing, but that was not a lasting, eternal salvation. If seeing Jesus isn't the main thing, what is the main thing? And can't we answer that from the text? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. How is seeing not the main thing? And how is seeing not that important? I don't know if your mind has already gone to the first other scripture that my mind went to, which is a place where Jesus talks about how blessed it is to be someone who hasn't seen him. Where Jesus talks about how blessed it is to be someone who hasn't seen him. You know where that is? John chapter 20. If you can find the gospel of John, look at John chapter 20 with me just for a moment. John 20 and verse 24. 
Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection. They didn't expect him to rise again. Peter didn't expect him to rise again. And yet he does. And he appears to almost all of them, but this guy named Thomas was in line at Quick Trip and didn't make it back. And so he's not there. He's not there when it happens. By the way, the line at Quick Trip moves pretty fast. That's a quality operation. So that wasn't a knock on Quick Trip. But, but it says in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I'm in John 20, verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friend, brother, sister in Christ, fellow covenant member of Racine Bible Church, hear Jesus speak, verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? And you can say, no, Jesus, I haven't. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Faith is the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 5 says that the, 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 the purpose of the Holy Spirit descending from heaven after Jesus ascended to heaven was so that the Holy Spirit could shed abroad in your heart the assurance of Christ's love for you and the Holy Spirit could energize and operate your love for Jesus. That's saving faith. And that's the gift of God to all those who belong to Jesus. If you hear Jesus say in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It raises an intriguing question. I don't know the answer to this question. That's why it's an intriguing question. But it's been enjoyable for me to think about this question and I, and I commend it to you. The question is, is it possible that Peter who wrote 1 Peter, who wrote the verses that we're looking at today, is it possible that Peter was of the opinion that his own faith in the Lord Jesus was not as great as ours is, was not as great as the faith that would be yet to come from those who later on wouldn't have the opportunity to see Jesus but would believe? Because Peter saw Jesus, just like Thomas did. Peter saw Jesus. Peter was present and listening when Jesus said that it's more blessed to believe him without seeing than to believe him just because you've seen. I want your faith to grow stronger this December than it ever has been before. And this is how. Understanding that seeing Jesus isn't the main thing. If that's point number one, what is the main thing? Point number two is simple and clear. Loving Jesus is the main thing. 
loving Jesus is the main. If seeing Jesus isn't the main thing, then what is? Loving Jesus is the main thing. And we see that in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I see love as a, as, as a root, and I see joy growing out of that root. We could see faith and belief as the root, but it's almost as if love is the root and belief and faith also is in that root and growing out of that root. The more you believe in him, the more you love him because he's Jesus, altogether beautiful. The great point and object of it all is that Jesus Christ is our salvation. And Jesus and salvation are inseparable. Uh, we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And salvation is being united to Jesus, and the outcome of our faith is that the, what the old, old ones called the beatific vision, where we really do see Jesus and we're united to him in this bond of love forever. Notice how love makes the knowledge operational. Notice that in verses 8 and 9. Notice, church, that love makes knowledge operational. We are a Bible teaching church and we teach Bible knowledge all the time and we'll never stop doing that. And we also confess at the same time that mere knowledge isn't enough. It's love that makes knowledge operational, that spins the gears. Teaching and preaching is meant to lead you to love Jesus Christ and trust Jesus Christ. Personal discipleship relationships are meant to help you apply in your life the teaching that you've received so that you can love others and love Jesus more. Love for Jesus is the key to everything. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. You love him. Do you remember? Remember Peter did like the worst thing that anyone could do and he denied Jesus? And you remember how Jesus came back to him? Jesus didn't come to him with a wagging finger. And Jesus didn't come to him with a, a grand jury level list of accusations. You, you broke uh, Leviticus 11.2 and subclause 3a and all the law, though he could have. Jesus came to him and he asked Peter a question. And what was the question? Why did you disobey me? No. What was the question, Peter. Do you love me? Did Jesus want Peter to obey him? Not a trick question. Yes, but what did Jesus ask? Do you love me? It's love that makes the knowledge of faith energetic and operative to overcome the sinful temptation, one of which would be a sinful temptation to deny Jesus, but whatever the sinful temptation is, it's love for Jesus that makes your knowledge about that temptation operative to push you away from what's wrong and toward what's right. Love, love, love's at the root of it. I was talking to a friend last week who's a, a youth pastor, not at this church, at a different church, and he had a, I don't know, he just had a couple of questions he wanted to ask me to help him with some things that he's encountering that are troublesome in ministry. And he, one of the things he said to me was, I, I really know how to teach the youth in my youth ministry what's right and what's wrong. But what, but what I don't know how to do is to get them to love 
what's right and love Jesus and hate what's wrong? I said, that's a great question. I, we spent a long time trying to answer that question. How do, you, how do you get someone to love Jesus? The best advice that I could give him, and I'll probably come up with better advice later, but the best advice I could give him is, if you want to become a person who loves Jesus more, you really got to do two things. Become a person who is around Jesus more, who's singing to Jesus, meditating on Jesus, learning about Jesus. And secondly, be a person who is around people who love Jesus. Be a person who's often around people who love Jesus. Because in some ways it's caught better than taught. And in some ways it's, it's modeled. And this is why we want to make and train disciples who love Jesus and want to bring each other in relational proximity so that we can help each other love Jesus. If seeing Jesus isn't the main thing, loving Jesus is the main thing. And to ask another simple question that isn't a trick question, why do we love Jesus? Why do we love Jesus? I'm with my, I was with my grandkids recently and one of them asked me, why do you love me so much? How could, how could I possibly answer that question? Why do we love Jesus? It's not wrong. In fact, it's right to answer that question. I love Jesus because he died for me. Remember verse 12? Things into which angels long to look. Do angels love Jesus? Yes. But can they say, when asked, why do you love Jesus? Can they say, I love Jesus because he became flesh for me? Because he was in that stall where the animals eat and then at the end of his life, he was spit upon, mocked, stabbed, killed. Jesus died for us and for our salvation. And the angels don't know what that's like from the inside. That's why Peter uses this little, this little phrase, they, that things into which angels long to look. Oh, they understand the glory of Jesus, but they don't understand what it's like for Jesus to die for them. This language of stooping down and looking. It says things into which angels long to look. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a language that would have been used or was used in Greek of something that was hard to read, and so you kind of squint your eyes and look at it carefully. You know, I just had another birthday and I'm resisting wearing reading glasses all the time. Mike, I've told you before, everything about me is in its late 20s except my eyes are not still there. They've, they've progressed. And I'm resisting, but like I, I had a, uh, one of those Kohl's coupons and it was like, I wanted to know if the shoes that we were looking at were under the exclusions, you know, and they would, and I'm like, I'm like, what does it say? You know, I was looking carefully. This says that angels are doing that not about, I don't know, some speculation about the Trinity or infralapsarian or whatever. The angels are doing that. They're looking that closely at like, what would it be like to be a brokenhearted, guilty person like you were and then to be washed by the blood of the Savior? Oh, church, how could we ever lose that joy? 
How could we ever need somebody like a pastor or somebody else to sort of goose us into more joy? It's all there. It's all there in what Jesus has done for us. Old collection of sermons on First Peter that I'm reading from uh, 16th, 17th century England. Uh, this old preacher says, the eyes of the glorious angels are drawn in wonder to see that almighty God was joined with the weakness of human flesh. They cannot fathom that he who stretched forth the heavens was bound up in swaddling clothes as an infant. And wonder of wonder beyond all admiration that the immortal Lord of life was subject to death as the son of man. This is Jesus, and we love him, for he died and rose again for us. It's not all about seeing Jesus. It is all about loving Jesus. A couple more things about seeing Jesus at Christmas time. Point number three from our text, the whole story of the Bible is Jesus. That's point number three. The whole story of the Bible is Jesus. Isn't that what Peter says in verse 10? <clears throat> Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Isaiah predicted his virgin birth. Micah predicted the town in which would be located his birth. Isaiah, Jeremiah prophesied various of his miracles, even his substitutionary death in our place, Isaiah 53 and 54. We could make a long list of verses, couldn't we? Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Zechariah 12, many places. But a, a list, a list of individual verses that are prophecies may be helpful, but it's not enough. What about all the little shadows? What about all the little types and pictures sketched ahead of time? What about Abraham and Isaac climbing the mountain and the ram caught in the thicket? And I know you haven't withheld your son, your only son from me. What about Joseph forgiving his brothers who, so to speak, killed him in the pit and then he rose again to forgive them? Was it Jesus who heard Abraham and Sarah laugh about the impossible son? Was it Jesus who wrestled with Jacob, pulled out his hip joint? Was it Jesus, the mighty warrior whom Joshua saw and prostrated himself before, the mighty victories? Was it Jesus who was the fourth figure, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? when they walked out of the fire and didn't even smell of smoke. Jesus was always there. John Calvin's commentary on 1 Peter, he has a wonderful little comment here. He says, Christ was never absent in the power of his grace. Christ was always present. Yet in the Old Testament law and prophets, Christ is shadowed forth, listen, Christ is shadowed forth in blurry lines. Whereas in the gospel, Christ has been set forth graphically distinct with vibrant colors. Yet, it is the same Christ 
in old and new. That's right. That's right. Paul said it in Acts 26 when he was preaching before Agrippa. He said, all I'm preaching is everything the Old Testament said would happen. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, said the same thing in Luke 24. So the whole story of the Bible really is Jesus. And then fourth and lastly, and this is where these first three points can, can come down into your experience this December, is this. The whole story of the Bible puts my life and my suffering into perspective. There you go. The whole story of the Bible puts my life and my suffering into perspective. And that's what Peter is getting at. We read verses 8 through 12, but 8 through 12 are really a long, concessive clause uh, backing up verses 4 through 7, where he says, you have an inheritance that's unfading, that God's power is protecting you. And verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In December, things happen in families. So for some of you, December is the most difficult time of the year. Whatever's happening in your life this December, what First Peter 1 shows you is that the circumstances of your life, even if they are not joyful in and of themselves, you can still have hope, not so much in the circumstances of your life, but you can have a living hope in Jesus Christ, the one who was foretold and the one who has come. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 10 is certainly saying that we have joy, though we don't always have joy in the immediate circumstances, we have joy as we look to Jesus. The whole message of the Bible, shouldn't it show us that there is no immediate personal relationship with another person or no situation or no circumstance that can be your living hope and be all of your joy? If you're going to have a living hope and a vibrant joy, you have to become a person whose existence derives its essence from the future, not from the present. You have to become a person whose existence drives his or her essence, not from the present, but from the future. We derive our direction and our standards from the future. That's why he says that when Christ appears, you'll be found in him resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. One commentator puts it this way, those to whom Peter wrote were reviled and accused and they were on the margins of society. They needed a larger perspective, which Peter provides, not in psychological terms of self-esteem, but by helping them to see their privileged place in the context of God's plans for all of history. That's what 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12 is doing. It's saying the, the Old Testament prophets looked at it, the angels look at it, and you have received Christ, and you're being guarded by him for a perfect salvation ready to be revealed in the end. Peter makes this astonishing claim that even though you suffer presently because of Christ, you love him, and you have an inexpressible, glorious joy in him. Here's the message. To deal with the immediate, 
We always have to see the ultimate. Suffering's the immediate. Salvation in Christ is the ultimate. The return of Christ is the ultimate. Christ being the fulfillment of all prophecies is the ultimate. And whatever the immediate suffering is, we see Christ and his salvation as the ultimate. And so we have reason for joy, joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we place all of our hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you in hope. We bow before you in faith. We bow before you with joy. Lord Jesus, would you place within our hearts by your Holy Spirit love which makes this knowledge operational. Jesus, would you place in our hearts the vibrant reality of the Holy Spirit that gives us a living hope in you and in your resurrection. Lord Jesus, continue the wonderful work that you have begun in the lives of the saints here at Racine Bible Church by your grace and for your glory. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.